0: What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Locations Unknown. I'm your co-host, Joey. Rado. Right on with me, as always, is a man who scissor kicked Chuck Norris and lived to tell the tale, <laughs>
1: Mike Van de Uh, Thank you, Joe, and thank you once again to all of our loyal listeners for tuning in. This is a big day for the podcast. We are uh, we moved into our studio space yesterday, and uh, we're recording our first episode here. Yep, we, we're, uh, we're here. We're in it. Um it sounds a little echoey to
0: me, so the yeah. audio
1: might be a little off. We're, we're still fine-tuning. It's not built out yet. We're Yeah. We're kind of slumming it at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> we're, tr- uh,
0: we're doing video. We're not sure if that's going to work either. The angles are all yeah. wrong. So this is going to be our test podcast while we, while we build the space out.
1: Yeah. So we apologize for any of the audio issues or if you hear a car go by with a loud muffler. We're right on the corner of a major uh, street here in downtown Milwaukee now. Um, so. Uh, before we get going, just want to give uh, some shout-outs to new Patreon supporters. So we got Ryland Jenin, Colleen Elliott, Lelia Parker, and Karina Bracken. So thank you so much for supporting thank you guys. the show. This is the direct result of support from all of our amazing Patreon members and YouTube members. And uh, your future support, you're going to see the direct result of that as we build out the studio and make it better and better. And
0: Yep, we're going to be building
1: computers that can handle
0: the video better, lighting, sound adjustments, things like that. It's going to look awesome.
1: Yeah, so thank you so much for supporting the show. Real quick, uh, if you want to call the show and leave a voicemail, you can call 208-391-6913. You can talk about anything you want, like us, hate us, suggestions. Ooh, uh, do we have any interior designers that have design <laughs> yes. ideas? Yes.
0: Uh, we'll send you pictures of the space. You could do a three D rendering. You know yeah. what you do for your job professionally.
1: Maybe just offer up for free. <laughs> to <help the> show. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I just uh, we're excited to be in the new space, but not a lot of updates other than that. So, anything nope. from your end? Nope. All, All right, right,
0: everybody, let's gear up and get out to explore
1: locations
0: unknown. July 21st 1996 a National Park Service backcountry ranger with 28 years of experience sets off from his remote outpost on a multi-day hike in the Kings Canyon National Park wilderness when he fails to radio in a massive search kicks off five years later a gruesome discovery is made join us this week as we investigate the disappearance of Randy Morgenson. Kings Canyon National Park is located in California where all the great national parks are all located. (laughs) There's so many of them. Yeah. So where this is going to take place within that park is around the Tyndale Creek Ranger Station and Bench Lake in that area. So if you're from there and familiar with those places, that's where it is. Uh, Just a quick note on the park. Both Kings Canyon National Park and Sequoia National Park are jointly managed, which is why you often hear the parks referred to as Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Park. Uh, the location in this case happens inside King's Canyon National Park. That's the park we'll primarily focus on during the location profile. So the size, it is just shy of 500,000 acres at 461,907. So that makes it the 21st largest park in the National Park Service. Uh, it was established in California on March 4th in 1940.
1: One of the later parks, I mean, you, a lot of the parks we've covered um, have all been like nineteen hundred. Late 1800s.
0: Yeah. It's one of the newer parks.
1: Yeah. It's funny when you say newer park because yeah. it's just as old as all the other ones. It's
0: just, we've just like, now you're a park. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been there longer than that. It's just a chunk of land we just decided to put invisible borders around. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> uh, so, habitation history of the area. Uh, the Sierra Nevada mountain range consists some of uh, contains some of the oldest national parks in the nation. Again, they're all the same age. But the park, I know. <laughs> I won't dwell on that. I just think it's funny. Uh, These parks occupy spectacular volcanic and glacial landforms, as well as distinctive subalpine and alpine habitats, setting these parklands apart from the wider landscapes of central and Southern California. The location's uniqueness has made it especially important to Native Americans as well. Native peoples have used, tended, and occupied and and valued the lands of the High Sierras in many ways and still maintain deep connections to the parks today. People have inhabited what is now Kings Canyon National Park for about six or seven thousand years. The Owens Valley, uh, how do you say, the Paiute, Paiute people? I'll leave that it's one to you. Paiute peoples, also known as Eastern Manos, visited the region from their homeland east of the Sierra Nevada around Mono Lake. The Paiute main, mainly used acorns found in lower elevations of the park for food, as well as deer and other small animals. They created trade routes connecting the Owens Valley with Central Valley West of the Sierra Nevadas. The Yokuts, who lived in the Central Valley, also ventured into the mountains during summer to collect plants, hunt game, and trade. Because of the inhospitable winter climate, they did not establish permanent villages in the high country. Prior to U- European contact, the Yakut population numbered between 15,000 and 20,000 and Manos about 6,000. So early Spanish exploration of California largely bypassed what is now King's Canyon National Park in 1805. Gabriel Moraga led an expedition through the Central Valley and crossed what is now King's River, bestowing the name Rio de los Santos Reyes, or River of the Holy Kings, on the stream. They were followed by prospectors during the California Gold Rush, which began roughly or began in 1848. However, not much gold nor other minerals were discovered in the area. Hale Tharp, a delusioned, uh, disillusioned gold miner, is credited with the 1858 discovery of giant forest in Sequoia National Park, which led to the further exploration and discovery of the other Sequoia forests in the area, including Grant Grove. So here are some interesting facts about Kings Canyon. Kings Canyon was originally uh, General Grant National Park. In October of 1890, one week after the establishment of Sequoia National Park by Congress and President Benjamin Harrison, my second favorite president, <laughs> a second smaller national park was founded. General Grant National Park was created for the purpose of preserving the second tallest sequoia tree. Just one tree. Yep. <laughs> which, had, which had been named for General Ulysses S. Grant. <clears throat> That's crazy. Those yeah. trees are so big. Have you ever seen them in person? Yeah, when I was a kid. I've never been there. Uh, my wife has been there with four of my kids yeah. over the course of a couple of years and they all come back stunned. So I need to make it out there.
1: It's it's cool. I'd love to do a hiking trip out in this area. It's just so far away. I know. <laughs> uh,
0: the tree was named after General USS Grant, the 18th president of the United States, and it was a unique feature of the park and attracted many visitors. The park was created to protect this tree from logging and other activities that could harm it. <laughs> what are the other activities?
1: Just, just over tour- tourism. Yeah. You know, too many people out there.
0: Gr- Grant's Grove, in order to protect General Grant and the surrounding trees in the area called Grant's Grove, the Department of the Interior sought to preserve a four square mile, four square miles of land just six miles northwest of Greater Sequoia National so Park. that's Grant's Grove. It's okay. like a
1: special part of the park. Awesome.
0: So that no commercial activity or anything can happen to yeah. the area. Yeah. Uh, it almost became Roosevelt National Park. Originally, <laughs> had a lot of naming. I know, right? This place originally named General Grant National Park. The park, which we know today as King Canyon, almost became Roosevelt National Park in the 1920s. Construction began on the road to connect the two sites, making General Grant more accessible to visitors. At the same time. Congress and the Department of the Interior also began considering the idea of a larger park that would consume General Grant and Sequoia National Park and be called Roosevelt National Park. Really focusing on the important things. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, yeah, it's important to protect them, but like yeah. when he did that, okay, move on. Yeah. <laughs> By mid 1920s, however, the plan for Roosevelt National Park failed when the House of Representatives voted against the initiative. I bet they spent
1: way too much time on that. Probably.
0: (laughs) Uh, Before becoming Kings Canyon, the park featured America's first African-American superintendent.
1: This guy had a crazy life. Um, I had no clue. I never heard him before, but this is just a very brief history. Should we do a show on him? It could be a a really neat, like we could do like a series, like
0: interesting people in the parks.
1: Yeah, we definitely could do a show on this guy. I mean, we just need content.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's. But it, if he's that cool, I love I love learning about unique yeah. people. So he was born a slave during the American Civil War. Charles Young lived a truly extraordinary life. He was the first African American to graduate from a white high school in Ohio in 1884. Young defied the odds, winning an appointment to the West Point uh, went to West Point through a competitive military examination. And after confronting the racism which was typical of his era, Young emerges as the only, only the third African American to graduate from West Point's America's most pre- prestigious military academy. That's tough. Yeah. Especially with, with everything against at that, him. At that time, yeah.
1: Yeah. It would have been nearly impossible. Yeah. We totally
0: have to do a show on this guy. Yeah. Uh, Young served as a cavalry officer. He then became the captain of an all black regiment at San Francisco's Presid- Presidio. Young rose through the military ranks to become one of the most respected leaders of his time. His career path would take an interesting turn, however, when managing the national parks became the responsibility of the U.S. Army beginning in 1891. Young was assigned to take his troops to Sequoia and General Grant, which is now Sequoia National Park and small portion of King's Canyon. It was during the summer of 1903 that Charles Young made history by becoming the acting superintendent
1: of these two parks. Pretty cool, cool. I. You know, backstory of that guy, and it would, it would be cool to, like, learn more about his Yeah, we totally uh, we'll make a note. That'd be,
0: like, we could do even, like, maybe that's a patron thing. Yeah. Like, do interesting people, the parks, and do a patron series. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the climate. So, our friends at the Copen Climate Classification <laughs> System. Uh, most of Kings Canyon National Park has a warm summer Mediterranean climate, with only the lowest of elevations having a hot summer Mediterranean climate. Because of the size of the adjacent national parks and their range of elevations, Sequoia and Kings Canyon, uh, their weather will vary per your location and season of travel. Temperatures vary by elevation location, so be prepared with the right clothing, hiking, and camping equipment. Mineral King and Cedar Grove are actually closed in the winter. The Sierra Foothills, uh, which are about 1,000 to 4,000 feet, are characterized by mild wet winters and hot, dry summers. So precipitation usually occurs from January to mid-May, uh, rain in the summer is actually very rare here, so your average rainfall is about 26 inches during the winter. Low-hanging clouds often drift in from the west, obscuring the countryside for several days at a time. In summer, Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Park's weather is in the middle elevations of 4,000, 7,000 feet, is characterized ma- mainly by warm days and cool evenings with occasional afternoon thunderstorms. These elevations receive an average of forty to forty-five inches of precipitation annually. Much of this falls during the winter, resulting in a deep blanket of snow from December to May. Uh, sub-zero temperatures, however, are rare, so it seems like a very pleasant park. Yeah, you're not going to run into too much stuff going on.
1: Not somewhere like uh, Yosemite, yeah, where you can get really or like um, it just have massive swings, massive swings, tons of snow. Yeah,
0: uh, some of the terrain. King's Canyon National Park, located in the western slope of the Sierra Nevadas uh, to the east of San Joaquin, Joaquin, uh, Joaquin Valley. I'm going to get butchered for that one. San Joaquin. Sam San Joaquin, Joaquin.
1: Joaquin. Yeah. Boy.
0: It's uh, Joaquin Phoenix. So it's kind of like <laughs> yeah. his name. Joaquin Valley. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how to spell his name. Is divided into two distinct sections. The smaller and older western section centers around Grant Grove home of many of the park sequoias and has most of the visitors facilities the larger Eastern section, which accounts for the majority of the park's area is almost entirely wilderness and contains the deep canyons of middle and South forks of King's river. King's Canyon is characterized by some of the steepest vertical relief in North America with numerous peaks over 14,000 feet on the Sierra crest along the park's East border falling to 4,500 feet in the Valley floor of Cedar Grove. Just 10 miles to the west, the Sierra Crest forms an eastern boundary of the park from Mount Goath in the north down to Junction Peak at the boundary of the Sequoia National Park. Several passes uh, cross the crest into the park, including Bishop Pass, Taboose Pass, Sawmill Pass, and Kier's Guard Pass. All of the passes are above 11,000 feet in elevation. So just some of the animals, dangers that you might run into. Um, or just some of the animals, not necessarily all dangerous. Gray fox, bobcats, black bear. Uh, grizzly bears were exterminated from California in 1920, <laughs> just so in case anyone just, knew, there are no grizzlies in California. There are no
1: grizzlies. I had to put that in there. Yep.
0: <laughs> Bighorn sheep, mountain lions, gophers, uh, California king snake, and striped racer snake. So the snakes are not venomous, and I saw the notes. The gophers, uh, what you want to look out for is sprained ankles.
1: Yeah, you. Uh, that is something to... Uh, especially if you decide to go off trail. Um, they make lots of holes. <laughs> yeah. I've done it before. <laughs> it's no good. No.
0: Uh, the threat here for forest fires is starting illegal fire when fire restrictions are in place. I am sure if you're from California or watch the news at all, any year in the last 10 years, California wildfires can be a problem.
1: And they take it serious. I w- This wasn't in California, but we were in the Grand Tetons. I probably told the story before. I'll tell it real quick. But... We were uh, waking up one morning at our one of our backcountry sites and we were kind of just like getting up for the morning and several park rangers with shovels were w- sprinting down the trail, like past us. Yeah. And we uh, we asked one of the guys in like the back of the line, like, hey, what's going on? And he said, we got reports of someone starting illegal fires like a couple miles that way. So they were like running to go get him. And we yeah. were making the joke like... What are the shovels for to like put the fire out or like, (laughs) yeah, dig fire trenches and maybe bop the (laughs) dude. Yeah.
0: So if necessary, but like think about how many people die and how many billions in damage those fires can cause. Yeah.
1: And I mean, it can take out half a park. I've been in, we've been in parks where there, there've been fires and it, it just looks like a moonscape. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they yeah, take if it. If it
0: happens naturally, fine, because that happens. You can't lightning strike, that. yeah. But if there's people just causing it, that's a problem.
1: Yeah. So take that very serious. If you're in one of these parks and they have fire restrictions, yeah, uh, follow their rules because it's bigger than you. You could end up destroying half the park. Yeah. It's not to
0: ruin your time. That's for sure. So there's tree hazards. You want to keep your eyes and ears open uh, to uh, run if you hear cracks or snapping from tree roots, trunks, or branches. Sometimes there is no sound. Don't linger uh, under dead, cracked, broken, or hanging branches, or under trees that are rotted at the base or have cracked bark or peeling. They are called widowmakers for a reason. If you get smashed while you're in your tent, a lot of times you will not make it. Trees are extremely heavy, even if they seem small. Uh, driving on mountain roads—was that, was that your car? Uh, I don't. I don't. I think it it wasn't originally, and then I think I added to it. <laughs> Sorry about that. (laughs) Yeah. There's like alarms going off. I'm very interested to hear this afterwards, uh, how much you can pick up on like a car
1: alarm. Sorry. This, I feel like uh, just, I feel like we're like zoo animals almost. (laughs) If you, uh, if we'll put the video up, so you can see the video it won't be the final position of the cameras but people are just kind of walking by like staring in like confused
0: (laughs) yeah we're on the corner so we have two windows we're on a major intersection
1: it's kind of cool but
0: we're gonna have to get used to it
1: yeah it's a little uh a little strange yeah (laughs) so
0: another thing i won't i'm not gonna read all this but i'll just go through it so when you're driving in mountain roads a big thing that people have issues with and we haven't talked about this before but when you're driving um when you're going downhill or extreme elevations, you don't want to like sit on your brakes. You want to downshift. There's a lot of buttons in your car. If you've ever seen a button with like the car going down-ish, mm-hmm. you want to turn that on because so what's going to do is use your engine RPMs to slow you down yeah. because if you overheat your brakes, um, the worst thing that can happen is your brakes will completely give out and then you have no brakes. Uh, yeah. that, that's a big problem for semi-drivers. If you've ever seen those sand ramps that go off to the right, that's for runaway trucks, trucks mm-hmm. that have overheated their brakes and they've lost it. Uh, but it can mess up your car as a person. You can warp your uh, they can rotors. They if yeah, you, you really can, ride them. Yeah. So yeah. you want to be careful when you're going down those. Use turnouts if you feel like something's going on with the car. Let it take some breaks, things like that. Yeah. Uh, and then just be really careful for rocks and wildlife. So you don't want to go careening off a cliff.
1: It is. It does take a little getting used to driving in you know high elevations because the road's usually very narrow. It's almost like switchbacks for cars. Yeah. And... It can be, you know, some of the sides of the road could be like a thousand foot drop. Yeah, you do not so want, you do not want to discover it if is your a car little fall. little freaky the first time you do it, but um, yeah. just do it at night and then you don't know what's out there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, just some of the other dangers:
0: uh, uh, poison oak, rattlesnakes, uh, the hot weather, drinking un. Uh, or contaminated water, I was going to say like unfiltered water, Yeah, hiking at high altitude, lightning, hypothermia, all the things we've talked about in other, th- other shows, you
1: got to watch out for in this park. So let's talk about Randy. So uh, like we said in the beginning, his name was Randy Morganson. He was a National Park Service backcountry ranger in the Kings Canyon National Park area. Uh, date he was last... Scene, last known location was July 21st of 1996. Um, gender, male, he was age 51. This is from the official NPS um, documents, but I saw a lot of news sources list his age as 54. But um, based on what the NPS published, he was 51 he was five foot eight. He was one hundred. Sounds like those news sources didn't do their research. <laughs> yeah, it didn't take long for me to find his age. Yep. <laughs> um, so his height was five foot eight. Weight was one hundred and fifty pounds. He had long, longish black hair. That's directly from his uh, missing flyer. Uh, brown eyes, black, and he had a black and gray full beard. And he was very tan. And the clothing that they believe he was last seen in was his Park Service uniform. So. Um, personality, he—I just picture coming across a guy like this on my hikes—a 28-year grizzled veteran of the backcountry, Officer Peach. Yeah, <laughs> he's kind of like one of those. Like he's gonna take no in, no crap from anybody, but probably pretty nice and very knowledgeable. But like, don't don't like have him catch you littering. Yeah. You'll oh. probably never make it out of there. Yeah, especially Randy. So Randy hated garbage discarded by visitors um, in the park. He dubbed them uh, Backpacker Detris. Um, He would haul out gunny sacks full of it um, out of the backcountry on regular occasions while checking out uh, different areas in the backcountry. And
0: you know what stinks? In his time, it was way more acceptable. I I don't know if we talked about this on the show, but I was joking about it the other day about I remember being a kid and driving on the freeway. Like, people just threw garbage out the window. Do you you remember doing that?
1: I never did it because, you know, my family always, like, were, you know against you, you, just throwing your trash you out the window. You lived in a nice area too. <laughs> I
0: lived downtown Milwaukee. Uh, yeah, it wasn't illegal and like it was like ah, a street and I remember even like with friends parents and my parents like they wouldn't do it now but it's like people like oh yeah the street sweepers clean it up. Yeah. It was it wasn't it wasn't like a thing
1: that I just remember <laughs> the scene from the TV show Mad Men. They go on a picnic during lunch one day and like this real nice picnic in this nice park all their stuff is laid out on a blanket and when they get done Don Draper the the guy the you know the lead character in the show just basically takes the blanket and like shakes it. Yeah. All the garbage just goes into the park and they leave. And I, this was, I think that was normal. This was the sixties. I mean, I'm sure it was maybe dramatized a little bit, but yeah. I think it was, no, uh, I, it was totally, the yeah. whole idea was like, oh, like, uh, well, back
0: then they had prisoners. They would have chain gangs cleaning yeah. the side of the freeway. So it was like, oh yeah, they have people that clean this up. So we just do this. It well, wasn't like a, ha, screw you. It was and, like, oh, you're done with your happy meal. Throw the whole bag out the window. I <laughs>
1: think uh, also there were a lot less people back yeah. in like the 60s and 70s population wise so it was it wasn't you know, as bad <laughs> yeah people throwing garbage out maybe what didn't become such a problem until more people here but I don't know yeah but we don't have to stand I just yeah. thought, I thought it was funny no so Randy uh, he was quoted from people he because he was so sick of it he called him swinus Americanus <laughs> the species of backpacking tourist whose litter he had to pick up and whose foul temper he could uh, could be the bane of his existence um but he also a lot of the reports and stories I read. He was also a really nice guy, very knowledgeable. So he wrote in, uh, in his 1973 McClure Meadow log, all of your life someone is pointing the way, directing you this way and that, determining for you which road is best traveled. Here is your chance to be an adventure, to be adventuresome. Don't forever seek the easiest way. Take the way you fi- take the way you find. Don't demand trail signs and sturdy bridges. Don't demand we show you the mountains. Seek them and find them yourself. This is your birthright as an animal most commonly denied you. Be free enough from intentions to find goodness wherever you are in whatever is happening. Here for once in your life, you can now live by whim. Here's your one chance to get lost. Fall in a creek. Find a beautiful place. I like that. Yeah. And he just wrote that in a trail log. <laughs> yeah. That's that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, That's super deep. I mean, so in an, over the, the decades of his work, Morganson had built a solid reputation in the park as a friendly backcountry ranger who could hold forth um, on the geologic origins of the cliffs uh, above him as well as on the scientific names of the you know a- animals around him. So like I said, he was a, he was a seasonal ranger for the National Park Service, which meant he had to reapply for his job every season with no medical benefits or retirement plan. So out of the 14 backcountry rangers at the time uh, in this park, more uh, than half of them who reported for duty in 1996 had been coming back every summer for more than a decade. Many of them have been there for two decades. Uh, They certainly weren't in it for the money. It is often said that rangers like Randy were paid in sunsets. Uh, In the event of his death in service, their families were eligible for a one-time $100,000 payment, but no pension. Uh, For the past few years, though, his... uh, his perch had been a small steel-framed and canvas-topped cabin two miles east of Bench Lake. A photographer by profession, Morganson is one of 16 high country rangers uh, who worked from July through October. This guy had a, an incredible early life, too. He'd grown up in Yosemite National Park, where he had assisted Ansel Adams in lugging around the famous photographer's heavy, large-format uh, tripod. He joined the Peace Corps and had been stationed in India where he learned high-altitude mountaineering and expedition planning from Sherpas. Uh, he had also been a winter ranger in Yo- Yosemite's uh, Tuolumne Meadows, a Nordic ranger, and a Nordic ranger out of Badger Pass. So people said that he was one of the most experienced rangers in the National Park Service at that time. There was really no one else that was more experienced than him. Joe's got pictures of him up on, on the screen. Yeah, if you're... I want to see him go watch our video yeah so like i said he had been in park service for 28 years uh for nearly three decades when someone went missing in sequoia or king's canyon canyon national park standard operating procedure had included at least a radio call to randy the park's most dependable source of high country knowledge randy these are stories from some of the people that worked with them Randy was so in sync with the mountains, uh, says Alden Nash, a retired subdistrict ranger and Randy's former supervisor, that he could look at a missing person's last known whereabouts on a topographic map, consider the terrain and how it pulls at a person, and make a judgment call with asto- astounding results. Oh, wow. So he would just like estimate how someone would attack yeah. a different
0: elevation based on their experience. Yeah,
1: so they actually had a story of this. Um, one time a Boy Scout was hiking and got separated from his... Uh, sorry, I'm adjusting something. Um, so one time a Boy Scout was hiking in the park and got separated from his troop and he couldn't be found before nightfall. Randy looked at a map for a few minutes, traced his thumb over a few lines, and then tapped his finger on a meadow. He said, go land a helicopter in the meadow tomorrow morning. <laughs> so he and then goes, that's where he'll be. So, sure enough. And he was right? (laughs) Dude. Sure enough. (laughs) That's so awesome. The next morning, they took a helicopter out there. The scout came running out of the woods after the helicopter landed in the meadow. He'd taken a wrong turn at a confusing trail intersection and hadn't realized his mistake until it was almost dark and too late to retrace his footsteps. The scout was scared after a night alone, but was fine. So, that's how well he knew the area. So. That's crazy. This might be the most experienced person we've ever covered that has gone missing in an area. I don't think we we could find someone that knows the area that they went missing in better than this guy. So, moving on to the timeline. So, we're going to go back to the start of the 1996 season. So, this Randy's life, um, you know, was ups and downs. He had a lot of, uh, you know, amazing experiences, but he. He also, you know, had some turmoil in his personal life. So Randy had seemed depressed to his colleagues saying, you know, after all these years of being a Ranger, I wonder if it's been worth it. Randy had recently received divorce papers from his wife, Judy. For many years, she had joined him in the backcountry, but in recent years, she had decided not to accompany him. And then Randy had recently uh, had an affair with a fellow Ranger, Lo Linus. Uh, and this was, I'm just going to, you're just going to put him on blast on our podcast. All- well, <laughs> it's just part like, of the story. I'm just I, kidding. I'm just giving you crap. Yeah, so. <laughs> Too soon. Yeah. Um, I didn't have the affair with, I mean, he did that. So,
0: you know, I was doing that cause you broke it. I, I broke it. Yeah. You bent the whole thing down. <laughs> <laughs> I did do that. Yep. So that you're just gonna have to deal with it.
1: All right. Okay. I wondered why. Mike's
0: microphone keeps slowly dropping, and he keeps pulling it back up all frustrated while trying really to keep. Really annoying. It's, you're doing a great job, though, of like keeping your composure during all of it. So good so. job. You keep talking. I'm going to try and fix it. Okay. I'm going to listen in the background while I'm doing it.
1: All right. So yeah, Randy had recently had an affair with this fellow ranger, and the divorce was the consequence. Randy had radioed uh, the same colleagues and his wife to ask some mundane questions that they interpreted as Randy just wanting somebody to talk to. The short conversation had ended when Randy said abruptly, I won't be bothering you two anymore. So back then, I don't know if it's the same as it is now, but um, twice a day, High Country Rangers had to check in by radio with headquarters. So mm-hmm. on July 20th, Morganson called in and reported nothing unusual. Uh, for the next two days, he failed to check in and supervisor chalked it up to his Uh, practiced of exploring the upper reaches of the high country, too high for radio contact. So nothing out of the ordinary for Randy and like we said, he's so experienced. No one ever doubted that he would get, you know, go missing. Um, So, July 21st, 1996, Randy had left a note on his tent. Uh, The date that he had written was June 21st, even though it was July, to say he would be away for two or three days. Uh, Then, Randy departed his station near Bench Lake, leaving his Smith & Wesson 357 Magnum behind, which was locked in a drawer in his cabin. Two hikers actually encountered um, Randy um, somewhere along the John Muir Trail the day of his disappearance. They said he seemed to be in good spirits and encouraged them to continue their trek over the next daunting pass. This would be the last time anyone would ever see uh, Randy alive, so... Like we said, he went missing July first, 21st of 1996. So fast forward to July 23rd of 1996. This is kind of when a cursory search for Randy started. So three days later, with still no word from Morganson, the Park Service initiated a, a small search of the area. Ranger Rick Sanger was just a second-year backcountry ranger, ranger when Randy failed to check in by radio for several days. Rick hiked through the night um, to... Uh, Morganson's station at Bench Lake, and discovered the note confirming he was overdue from a cross-country patrol. So, now that they knew he he was supposed to be back by the twenty-fourth, when he didn't return on the twenty-fourth, a very extensive search was uh, launched. So, July twenty-fifth, nineteen ninety-six, was when he was officially reported missing, um, and. Many said Randy was always known to have a low impact on the environment, but there was a lot of heavy rain around this time, so they couldn't pick up any tracks, and so they really had no clue of where he was going. So the news uh, spurred one of the most intense and emotionally draining search and rescue operations in NPS history, uh, in large part because the rangers were searching for one of their own. And at the time, National Park officials actually said this was... The only other disappearance of a Ranger other than Paul Fugate, which we covered in our very first episode, uh, which was from the 1970s, and he was not found as well. So uh, Randy Kaufman, the incident commander, had instructed Rangers searching for Randy to read Morganson's logbook to gather any hints of where he had gone. He also conducted... Now, I've never heard of this before. Um, so they conducted a secret ballot... ballot among them to assign each segment of the the search area POA, a probability of area, and then an ROW, rest of world probability, if Randy was somewhere outside of the designated search area. Um, The percentage points assigned by each ranger for the 16 segments plus the row segment had to add up to 100 points, and nobody could assign zero for an area. The Bench Lake Basin area was the highest percentage POA at 26.2%, while the uh, Marion Lake and its surrounding area were uh, second highest at 19.2%. The row option was voted as the lowest POA by everybody except Ranger George Durkee, a close friend who assigned that choice a high percentage knowing Randy's depressive thoughts at the time. Each segment was between 500 and 7,000 acres, making the operation difficult and hazardous to the rescuers. Nearly 100 um, rescue personnel searched 80 square miles of wilderness Jeez. So talk about, so did they do that ballot and it was secretive so they could have like overlapping?
0: Like so they wouldn't have the same person checking the same area twice?
1: Yeah, I don't, I know, I really don't know. Maybe it's so people aren't influenced by other people. Like, so this is what each person thinks and maybe they figure they get more accurate. Okay. Idea of where to search. I don't know. I've never heard of that. Method yeah, I've never before. heard of it either before. I
0: want to know if yeah. it like has proven to be better or if it's, right. you know, just doesn't make a difference.
1: Yeah, I don't know. So um, a short time before his disappearance, Randy's radio had stopped working, um, which forced him to hike to another station to pick up a replacement. Now, they had hoped that this was all just because of a dead radio, so they they were still holding out hope that it, maybe it was just a, a malfunction of his radio. Mm-hmm. So a special investor... Uh, investigator employed by the park service found out that Randy had been threatened with violence on two separate uh, recent occasions, but both of those individuals had alibis. So they're actually looking into foul play as well. Some even speculated that he had just left the park to start a new life, but Randy's car was found where he had parked it. And like in almost all cases, bank records show no withdrawals and his credit cards were unused. A computer program called Cassie. There you go, Joe, Yeah, <laughs> uh, which stands for computer-aided search information exchange. It sounds something very 90s. Yes. Uh, <laughs> very literal. Yeah. <laughs> so, was used and designed to simplify most of the calculations involved in managing a search emergency. The, a computer printout provides basic information about how each segment has been searched, air, foot, dog, horse, and how effective the searchers believe they were in clearing that area another tool that i've never heard of before i'm sure they yeah I'm i wonder sure they're using tools now like yeah they may maybe they use stuff like this and it's never
0: brought up i wonder why in this particular one they're like here's all the tools we use yeah
1: it's not like you want to keep it secret like i, I don't yeah. know why you would not mention that but yeah maybe it's just so commonplace now that people just assume like oh yeah you're using modern technology to help yeah. search like
0: yeah maybe that's like how we talk about FLIR right yeah. now because that's new maybe that's like what that was then and well they this used is all they used
1: FLIR um in this search as well so it's oh. been around a while so yeah, then I don't know why I've never heard of this <laughs>
0: yeah. maybe it doesn't work and they stopped using
1: it and yeah. that's why they
0: don't talk about
1: it um so they said using this method the leader of the search can cross off search segments once they have been cleared or maybe it's something that everyone has on their phone now yeah like it's an app you can download search and rescue app. yeah maybe I should probably have looked into this more but it, it sounds kind of interesting but Um so that's what I'm here for. (laughs) (laughs) However, the system presumes the missing person is not on the move and has not re-entered the area already cleared. In addition, segment searches are generally limited to surface areas, meaning they don't factor in locations underwater, underground, or under rock slides. So over the following days, there were plenty there was a lot of frustration as dogs followed scents that seemed to abruptly stop, and random pieces of gear were found in several different locations but none of it could be positive, positively linked to Randy. A FLIR helicopter equipped with infrared camera picked up a campfire burning on a hillside, but with no one in sight tending it. Eventually, the search was called off with no sign of Randy or a body. Uh, then something kind of strange happens. Um, after all this, a letter arrived at Randy and Judy Morganson's home in Sedona, Arizona from Randy. Judy opened the letter and noted it had been postmarked two days after his apparent disappearance. Since there's no postal service in the national park, she couldn't understand how Randy could have mailed this letter. That added to the suspicions that he had left the area to start a new life away from the NPS. So very, you know, odd. Um, It doesn't mean he didn't somehow get the letter out and then disappeared. Um, It could have just taken that long for the letter to, you know, process out of the area. Sure. Who knows? Yeah. So let's move uh, into the future now. Early August of 1996. So 13 days after Randy had been reported missing, um, the official search, which included helicopters, dog teams, and dozens of volunteers was called off. Not a single trace of Randy had been found, not even a footprint. So a massive search. You had, I think you had a motivation for the searchers to really try on this one because they were looking for one of their own. Um, yeah. I th- I'm obviously they try in every search. It's not like they take a search off, but this one they had special motivation to f- you know find him and didn't even find a footprint, not a single anything. He took leave no trace very seriously. Yes. So I like I'm
0: I'm not saying to be funny. Like it, it's a little bit of a, a a joke, but with how much he hated garbage and stuff, even with him being lost, he was probably very careful about not leaving a trace. Where it's like the one time it's like hey maybe tie something to a tree yeah. or something that but.
1: Yeah, so, you know, he, uh, for, everyone pretty much thought this was going to be one of those cases that was never solved, Uh, didn't find anything, but July 15th of 2001, nearly five years after the search was called off for Randy, a 19-year-old member of the California Conservation Corps trail building crew ventured off trail and found some remains. The worker found some new evidence near a creek in a gorge in the uh, window peak drainage near a very near the outermost border of the search area below the pools of a waterfall. Rangers were called in and soon discovered a tattered shirt with Morganson's badge, then a backpack with a buckle fastened and a boot. On close examination of the boot, which was half submerged in the water, it had something white protruding from it, a leg bone. The boot and the pack seemed to match the description of the gear that Randy reportedly had been using. Investigation and recovery teams were flown in shortly after <clears throat> a functioning park-issue radio was discovered resting on top of the falls, not at the bottom, like the other evidence. It was, turned in, um, it was turned to the on position. The discovery confused matters even more. Although these remains seemed to confirm Randy had been in the mountains the whole time, investigators weren't certain whether this is where Randy had died. Rangers had remembered searching the area and crossing at the exact spot where the radio was found. So is that a case of them misremembering the search? Or did he come back after the search, you know, 13 days later and place that radio there? Or was it foul play and someone killed him, dumped his body there, and then oh. put the radio? So we'll get into theories. So, um. Retired Sierra Sub-District Ranger Alden Nash believes Morganson had fallen through a snow bridge and broken his leg and his body had simply been hidden beneath the ice throughout the search. Weirdly, during the rescue attempt in 1996, Judy had dreamed of a dead man floating in the lake. Um, she went on to... Oh, no. Um, a guy who wrote a book on this. So I forgot to mention when we started this. This case has been actually covered quite a bit. There's several books mm-hmm. on it. So... Yeah. There's a lot more detail to the case that we couldn't really get into because of time constraints of the podcast, but I recommend going out there and potentially, you know, getting one of these books and reading about it. It's a very fascinating case. But um, this guy, Eric Blem, uh, was quoted, I don't think it was an accident. Um, He's the author of the last season, a book about the disappearance of Randy Morganson. Blem says Randy may have wanted to appear to have died on the job to make sure Judy, his wife at the time, got her $100,000 benefit from the government, a policy not honored in the case of suicide. He goes on to quote, if he wanted to throw off the dogs and or sucker people into believing something happened, he did a great job. Blem says, after so many years with uh, the bones gnawed, there's no way to say exactly what happened. So um, somewhat a closure because they found his remains, and then something actually kind of cool has happened in the time since. So there's kind of an unofficial, um, you know, they unofficially are honoring Randy. So the sure. uno- unofficial Mount Morganson, in the memory of Randy, is the first peak west of Mount Russell, half a mile uh, just north of Mount Whitney. Morganson uh, should also uh, is also distinguished from the West Peak of Mount Russell. AO um, oh, and a summit register with the name Mount Randy Morganson at 13,920 feet was taken to the top by two park veterans in 2007. A peak bagger named Richard uh, Petrovsky found the original register missing when he climbed Mount Morganson on September 20th of 2008. So he ended up placing a temporary one there that day and made a huge effort to return to the summit one week later with a weatherproof ammo can and a replacement journal Uh, that barely a handful of people if any sign each year so uh, before these registers the peak was referenced only by its height on usgs maps peak 4245 so very interesting case this is um i'm sure other park rangers have died in the parks but this was i don't i don't remember hearing about a park ranger since 1996 to have gone missing Mm -hmm. i guess i yeah I, i haven't so uh, this may still stand as one of two of uh, two park rangers who have ever gone missing in the park and um a lot of a lot of questions remain on this you know he did have some encounters with you know hikers that were you know physical in nature that they had they actually mentioned in the search he uh, was going through a nasty divorce with his wife uh, a friend of his said he was he appeared kind of suicidal at times so um And then, you know, investigators said they think he fell through a snow bridge. So there's a lot going on. Um, What do you think happened, Joe?
0: (sighs) Well, first of all, we are now the proud owners of Cassie 3. Oh, really? It's free. Really? Yeah, look at it. This is, you can do all the calculations for search and rescue. Wow. So it's made to run on Windows XP, though. Okay. So I don't think it's been updated for about 15 years. (laughs) Yeah. all right, so I thought that was funny. I'm cool. going to play with that, actually, and find out how it works. So what do I think happened? The radio thing is weird. Because it was such a long time, and it was, like, for something to be standing upright like that yeah. for five years, because they said it was upright, right, at the top of the falls? Yes. So nothing knocked it over, went, like, right. I'm thinking about, like, when I have a walkie-talkie, I place, like, in my backyard. Yeah. Odds are, it's not going to be upright by the end of the day.
1: And I mean, this is probably bigger than your standard, like one. No, I'm thinking
0: of like a, uh, like a official NPS one, a very big black base, not like a little tiny, like Motorola one or something like that. But even then it's on a rock. It's not like on a flat surface and it's in the wilderness. Yeah. Like rain, wind, Animals, like stuff in vet like a mouse going to investigate it would might knock it over if it jumped on it. Yeah. Like how is it upright five years later? Well,
1: now I don't know that it was upright. I think it was in the on position.
0: Well that I mean that makes sense. Yeah. Because he would um, have it on and why why would he turn it off?
1: Yeah. So um
0: Unless that's a thing they, I, I could be wrong, maybe it's a thing they do to conserve battery.
1: So it was, it was, it, it, they didn't say the radio was like standing upright. They just said it was discovered at the top of the falls on.
0: Oh, okay. I thought, I thought you mentioned no. that it was upright. Okay. So I just spent a lot of brain power thinking about that. Maybe <laughs> it's not even true. So
1: see, that's, so they thought the fact that it was on was odd. Um, let me just read through it again. Investigation and recovery teams were flown in shortly after a functioning park issue radio was discovered resting on top of the falls, not at the bottom, like the other evidence. It was turned to the on position. They said uh, the discovery conf- confused matters even more. Um, so yeah, they maybe I misspoke, but um, okay. so they were just confused by the fact that all the rest of his gear was down at the bottom of the falls and the radio was the one thing that was on the top and it was still on well um here's a hypothesis what
0: if he is lost yeah he's in this gorge right where there's no radio so is he on top of the falls to try and get signal and he's literally trying to key up the microphone yeah and does he slip and fall and he drops that as through, he falls through an
1: ice bridge like they said
0: yeah or like or he's just on the edge of the rock or something like that without yeah. seeing too many like there wasn't photos of the area but I'm just I'm if there's no foul play to me it's he's on top of something to get a signal and he's yeah. trying to reach somebody so he's keying the mic maybe he slips and drops as he's falling you know if he's holding the thing his arms flail because he's falling do he throw it up in the air and that and he went to the bottom died yeah and then that's where his remains are and then the walkie's up top
1: yeah, I the one thing I, I uh, I struggle with is him getting lost out there. I feel like I'm leaning more towards kind of what that author of that book said was he kind of he he was suicidal, but he staged it as an accident so his wife could get that benefit.
0: Well, that that would be the accident I would come up with. He was keying up his mic at the edge of a waterfall. Yeah, yeah. That's it's too bad because
1: um, he seems too like too good too intelligent in that area to make the mistake of walking out on an ice bridge. You know, like I feel like he would know that there's
0: also the incident you get into him. I'm going to make sure I'm sharing. I am, uh, the incident you can get into where you can be complacent when you're that good at something. True. So if it looked like just something like, yeah, hey, I've done that a million times and yeah. just like, so he's being quote unquote careful, but almost a little careless in his abilities. That's yep. always a possibility. Um, so I could see it either way. I could see it being a legit accident. I could also see it being like you said, if he was suicidal, it looks like an accident, yeah, maybe it's too perfect, like he overthought how an accident would look and then actually fell. yeah, well, I'm just saying <laughs> yeah. like like maybe normally the walkie like you wouldn't throw your walkie, like you're not thinking clearly if he's depressed and he's just trying to do something right by his wife well a the right thing would be to not do that and work it out but he's potentially overthinking what because an accident is something that happens that there is no thought going into otherwise it wouldn't be an accident yeah so to plan it out usually it's going to look a little weird so maybe that is the case because for whatever reason the guys who are seasoned at this looked at what they found and said something's off yeah I do like giving credence to people's guts that know what they're doing. Yeah. So if they felt that way, maybe it wasn't exactly what they said, but it's kind of like when you walk into an area and you know everything about maybe you, you, your bedroom, right? Yeah. If something was moved a little bit that's always been there, you, you might not know what changed, but you'd walk and be like, "Something's different something's in off. here." Exactly. Yeah. So if they felt that they're seeing things or that they might even be able to put in words, but they know it's not normal.
1: Yeah, and I mean isolation. Uh, even the most, you know, the people that love being alone, if you're isolated long enough, it can mess with you. Yeah, we're social beings. And if, you know, he's going through a tough divorce, this is something that has not happened over the other 27 you know, years of his service out in the backcountry, there's a chance that it kind of messed with his head. And, you know, I don't think we'll ever know if it was suicide or not, but I'm definitely on the same train as the investigators thinking that he fell through an ice bridge Yeah. and... It broke, you know, injured his, broke his leg and was stuck down there and ended up dying. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that they made the point to say that they did search this area and didn't see the micro, the walkie talkie. Yeah, that's. Could have been covered up in snow. Did they? I mean, yeah. I was going to say, did they
0: talk about the conditions during the search? No, I don't recall really. you mentioning it. Just so. that,
1: just that it rained a lot and they couldn't get tracks. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think, I think unfortunately um, he we won't like we said we won't know if it was suicide or not but he obviously fell. I don't think it was foul play. It seems too remote um of an area. Yeah, whatever happened it seems like he fell. Yeah. And
0: either passed from injuries directly or passed shortly after due to the extent of his injuries.
1: Yeah. So. Yeah. At least uh, at least they got closure and you know eventually found the yeah, remains. It's, it's a really sad case especially for a guy that you know, seem to love the outdoors.
0: There was a quote when I was searching for him that popped up a lot because the uh, guy uh, Eric Blam wrote a book called The Last Season. Yeah, that's the guy I was quoting. Okay, he had another quote in there, and it made it seem like I didn't do too much research, but it made it seem like it was actually a quote from Randy. Okay, and it says, "The least I owe these mountains is a body." Huh. And he <laughs> said that was him quoting it, and that's from his book. Yeah. So interesting. That leads me to the okay. If he's suicidal, and yeah. that's kind of in his head, like he's so in, in attuned to nature and feeling one with the wilderness, that's yeah. like his like coup de grace. This is how I'm going to go out. Yeah, I'm going I'm to pay back my my being to the mountains. Yeah, it's an unfortunate way to do it if that's truly the case. But it's just, I mean, it might. It's a it's it's a good quote when you're not talking about being suicidal. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good quote to like. I I know how. I feel about that quote when I read it. I was like, I feel the same way. When I go to the immense beauty of it, it's like, what can I do to repay? Yeah. Like earth for what I've done. Now for me, it's, I clean the trails. I I pull, if I see garbage, I pick it up. Yeah. I usually am walking out, not with the amount of garbage he has, but I usually, well, if it's a success, I didn't find any garbage, but otherwise I always try and leave with more than what I brought in. Yeah. In that regard. So that's how I repay back, but.
1: Yeah, no, I think I, I think it's a sad case because he seemed like a really cool guy. Like any hiker would want to like come across him and pick his brain about yeah. His and he is just a, he is just
0: a caricature yeah. of of what a ranger would. And look he got like.
1: he got to like hang out with Ansel yeah. Adams as a kid. Yeah, I'm
0: sure. Like, well, so that's like people like that. You it's fun to sit around a campfire and just hear their stories from their yeah. life because for them it's
1: normal. Can you imagine the stories this guy had from exactly. 28 years of working in the back country? Yeah. And, <laughs> and just being around interesting people. Like yeah. that was just his life. That was just his life. Yeah. So. Well,
0: yep. Um, well, thanks again yeah. for tuning into our show. We appreciate you all for listening and sharing locations and known with your friends and family. Be sure to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, where you can find all the videos of what we talked about. And you want to see what this guy looks like. Also, if you'd like to support the show monetarily, please visit our website or Facebook store to buy some cool swag. Additionally, you can subscribe to our Patreon account on YouTube and some of the Apple subscription. Have we even gotten any in the Apple subscribers? A ton. Yeah. (laughs) I think like something. People,
1: I think something's wrong with
0: it. I don't know if you can find it. Maybe. I mean, yeah. we had, uh, what'd you say? We had 60,000 downloads last month? Yeah. That's crazy. The last time we celebrated was 40,000. That's 20,000 yeah. more downloads last month. So word's getting out. So thank you all. <laughs> Keep spreading the word. Make our show bigger and bigger and bigger. We'll add different things, have events, things like that as we get larger. Uh, maybe go full time, which means more content. So yeah. spread the word to get more of these. Uh, And lastly, when enjoying the beauty of nature, whether backpacking, camping, or simply taking a walk, always remember to leave no trace. Thanks, and we will see you all next time.